Someone um, back around New Year's sent me a note, and um, I haven't really had a chance to share it with you, but, but I want to this morning. Um, and uh, it says, here's what it says. He says, this year I want to be more like Jesus. I heard one amen. Yeah. There's more to this, but this is the opener. This is the get your attentioner. This year, I want to be more like Jesus. So I'll do these six things. Number one, I'll hang out with sinners. Number two, I'll upset religious people. Number three, I'll tell stories that make people really think. Number four, I'll choose unpopular friends. Number five, I'll be kind, loving, and merciful. And last but not least, I'll take naps on boats. More like Jesus. Our word, our bond. A businessman was traveling on a plane for the very first time. He'd always been so terrified of flying that he arranged his meetings in such a way that he could get there by road, travel, boat, anyway, but not flying. So this is his first flight. His next appointment required him to go to some distance. There was no way. He just had to fly. And the flight was going quite well as they got into it, when all of a sudden the plane started shaking, and a few minutes later the pilot came over the intercom and announced that the engines on the right side of the plane had stopped, so they were making an emergency landing. And if you've ever been on a plane, when that announcement comes over the uh, intercom, it, it, it does kind of move you. It gets you thinking. We've been there. Shortly thereafter, another shaking, and the pilot came on again, and he announced that the other engines were having trouble. So everyone was informed now to assume the crash uh, position with their head between their knees and all that other stuff that they teach you to do. For the first time, the businessman felt vulnerable. He had never once felt the need to cry out to God for anything, but at that moment, he did. And he prayed. And he said, God, if you will allow me to survive this crash, I will take a solemn vow to give to charity half of all my possessions. It wasn't very long after that prayer, all four engines began working again. And the plane then glided very smoothly onto the runway. When the door opened, the businessman rushed to disembark that plane. And as he made his way out of the runway area, the man who had been sitting right beside him spoke to him before he got away. And he said, excuse me, sir, I'm a pastor involved in several charities, and I heard your vow to the Lord concerning your possessions, and I can guide you in keeping that vow by recommending some outstanding charities that have real needs. And quickly the businessman turned and replied, oh, oh, that won't be necessary. That won't be necessary. You see, you see, I made a new vow with God. I vowed if I ever got on another airplane, he could have it all. 
You know, sometimes the promises people make are nothing more than, than lip service. Now today we're going to look at something very unusual in Scripture and oftentimes overlooked because there are some other real dominant themes in the Scripture that I'm going to share with you, and sometimes this one gets hidden. We're going to look at a promise and how it was fulfilled. It's the narrative of the search for a wife for Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah. So yes, we are in Genesis again. I love that book. And I want you to open to chapter 24, and just let's stay, keep open, just keep open to that chapter 24. And before we move further, let's ask the Lord's guidance this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. May it now penetrate our minds, our hearts, our spirits. May we be moved to action. May we be people who not just hear, but we truly listen, and then we apply. And we'll thank you, God, for all that takes place in this room and beyond, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our word, our bond. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. And so I thought this is quite the love story to share on the day before Valentine's. Because this chapter, Genesis 24, tells of the search and the finding of a wife for Isaac. Now let me give you some background. This chapter has 67 verses. It's quite long. It's somewhat redundant. In other words, uh, certain uh, thoughts and actions are repeated. So uh, what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to tell you this love story, and then we'll come back and look at more depth at a few verses just to kind of pull it together. So the story starts out by telling us that Abraham was a very old man. doesn't seem to matter when we meet Abraham. It seems like he's always old. I thought he was old when Isaac was born. Abraham was 100 years old then. So now he's 140 years old, and his wife Sarah had just died, and he probably felt in his heart that it was time for his son to marry, you suppose? He didn't want him to marry, though, any of the local women or girls who were Canaanites who did not worship the one true God, and they lived all around them in that area. <coughs> so Abraham, excuse me, calls his chief servant into his house. His servant's name was Eliezer. He was from Damascus. And he tells them that he wants them to go back to Abraham's homeland, the, the area where he came from, before God called him into the place they were now living, and I find a wife for his son Isaac. That's the mission. He wants him to find a suitable wife for his son among his relatives. That's the way they did things in those days. Isaac is 40 years old, and Abraham thinks, Isaac, it's time. The servant agrees to this. He travels back to the ancestral home of Abraham, where Abraham's brother Nahor had settled down. He had lived there for many years. And when he gets to that area, and it was a long, long journey, he stops just outside of town by the local well and as was the custom, the young women from town were coming out to draw water for the evening. He looks around and sees many young women. And he thinks, how in the world am I ever going to find a wife for Isaac like this? So many choices. 
So he went back to his default position. And a little side note here, if I may. When you and I are faced with a situation that seems impossible, where we don't have a clue how to proceed, we don't know what to do, we don't know how to even take our next step, you know we also have a default position. And it's the exact same one that this nameless servant had. We have the best one of all. It's called prayer. Prayer. We can learn so much from this example of overwhelming doubt and conflict and confusion. We can always stop and pray and wait for God to answer. I said, we, we, we can always stop and pray and wait for God to answer. And that's what he did. He prayed. Something like this, Lord, help me. Give me success in this quest. There are all these girls walking around and I don't have a clue who to talk to. He said, Lord, this is what I think I will do. Now, you might find this strange, but just stay with me and remember the custom of the day. I will ask one of them if, if, if she will give me a drink of water. And if she does, and then she offers also to water the camels that I have, that will be the one. That will be proof. And if she doesn't, I'll try another. And about that time, a girl named Rebecca came walking up, and she fulfilled all the requirements that he had asked God to do. And lo and behold, she not only watered everybody, she was also the granddaughter of Nahor, Abraham's brother, so she met all the criteria that he'd been given. There was a nice added bonus, too. Down in verse 16 of Genesis 24, the Scripture says that she was very beautiful. No, no, it doesn't say she was beautiful. It said she was very beautiful. Check it yourself. The servant gave her gifts and asked if her father would allow him to come and stay at their house that night. And she said, yes, her father would. So guess what the servant did then? He fell down and he worshiped God and he gave him the credit for the fulfillment of his prayer. Now, i got to tell you, this story can get long. And I'm just hitting the highlights because these are real highlights. But the servant would end up at Rebecca's father's house, and after dinner, the servant was asked why he had come. And he explained to them that he'd been sent by their uncle Abraham, and he was searching for a wife for Isaac. He told them the story of his prayer. He told them how God had led him to Rebekah. He told them how he wanted her to go back with him to be Isaac's wife. But not only that, not only that, but he wanted to leave the next morning. And they went and asked Rebekah if she would agree with this. And guess what? Guess what? Guess what? She said yes. She said yes to the request. She agreed to go and to be Isaac's wife. So they left. And they went back to the land of Canaan. Now, fast forward. Isaac is out walking and meditating in his fields one evening. And he sees some camels 
and people, a whole entourage, coming along from a distance. So he walks toward them so as to meet them. And Rebekah saw him coming, and she asked who he was. And she was told that it is your husband-to-be. So as was the custom of the day, still in some places it's a custom today, she covered her face with a veil. That's where the veil thing and the wedding all came from, and was introduced to her future husband. We don't have much record of it, but as far as I can tell, the wedding went off without a hitch. That's a miracle in itself. And Scripture says that Isaac loved her very much. And she was a great comfort to Isaac since he had recently lost his mother, Sarah. Oh, my. I told you. Love story. Beautiful. Happy ending. Man gets girl. Truly hallmark. Now, you can read a whole lot more about Rebecca as you go through Genesis. But it suffices to say that not everything was what we would call sweetness and niceness and sugar about Rebecca. But you'll read that yourself in later accounts, and I'll leave it for your homework. Now, what can we glean from this chapter of Genesis? You know, I've read and I've heard uh, lessons from this chapter that focus on the sacrifice and on the commitment of Rebecca, of Rebecca. And, and that's worthwhile. There's some great teaching there, too. But in this time that we have left today, I want to take a look instead at what God can teach us through Abraham's servant, Eliezer. Not through Abraham, not through Isaac, not through Rebekah, but through the servant. Stay with me. Okay. Let's look now at three verses. I said we'd come back in this chapter 24 of Genesis. Verse 2. One day, Abraham said to his oldest servant, the man in charge of his household, Take an oath by putting your hand under my thigh. Verse 3. By the way, that was customary for affirming a solemn oath. Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not allow my son to marry one of these local Canaanite women. And then, if you would, let your eye go down to verse 9. So the servant took an oath by putting his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham. He swore to follow Abraham's instructions. You see, the servant took an oath, or he made a promise to Abraham. He promised him that he would do what he wanted him to do. He promised Abraham that he would follow his instructions to the letter. Now, that promise couldn't have been easy to keep, and it wasn't. It was somewhere in the area of six or 700 miles from where they lived uh, to where Rebekah would be found. And when traveling by camel, one would travel about maybe two miles an hour, maybe. 
So you got yourself a 30 to 40 day trip, maybe 45 days, one way. And most folks, I would venture to guess, around day 20 or 25, maybe some of us around day 5 or 10, would start thinking, you know what? That old man will never know the difference. I'll just tell him that I found a suitable woman for his son, and we'll have at it, and that'll be it. Let's just find us an oasis around here somewhere in the desert and get a little R&R, and he'll never know. He'll never, ever know. Or once he got there, he could have looked and then seen all these girls at the watering hole and just kind of threw up his hands and said, you know what? This is impossible. Old Abraham will understand. And by the way, there's not much to understand because he won't know the difference. He didn't do any of that. He didn't do either of these off-base ideas. You know why? Because he had taken a vow. Listen very carefully. He had taken an oath. He had made a promise. And after all, my friend, I want to remind you that a promise is a promise. Our word ought to be our bond. I don't know if you ever watch little boys, especially in the generations gone by, but when they make a bet or a promise, they always had a gesture that they used to seal it. What would they do? They would shake hands. Or now they give a high five. Or maybe they give a fist bump. Oh, yeah. Cute. Mm. Well, the servant had shaken on it with Abraham, his master. The scripture says that he placed his hand under Abraham's thigh as he made his promise. And I, for one, I am thanking God for culture change. (laughs) Or we'd still be placing our hands under each other's thighs just to seal a deal or make a promise. The problem is that a handshake doesn't mean much anymore. Saying, well, you have my word, doesn't mean much anymore. When it comes to a promise, these things are kind of by the boards. They're kind of gone. Now, you old geezers out here, like me, if there are any left, do you remember when your handshake was your bond? I remember my father saying, your word is your bond. I I didn't really know what that meant, but as I grew older and grew into it, I soon found out. You see, that was somebody's promise, and you could depend on that, and you could depend on them to keep that promise, period. It didn't matter, the circumstance. And you see, that's God's standard. So our word, our bond. In telling the people about God's expectations of how they were to live their lives. Why Moses told the Jewish people in Numbers 30 and verse 2, a man who makes a vow to the Lord or makes a pledge under oath must never break it. He must do exactly what he said he would do. And then Jesus In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, he gives us this standard down in verse 37. He says, just say a simple, yes, I will, 
or no, I won't. Then he adds, anything beyond this is from the evil one. You see, Jesus tells us that our word is our bond. A promise is a promise is a promise. But sadly, in our world today, oh boy, promises don't mean much anymore, do they? Look at the lawsuits. Look at the broken contracts. Look at the divorce rate. Look at, look at all of the, the, the personal injury cases in our country. Look at all those things that have been turned upside down. It's easy to solve all those issues. God says a promise is a promise. Yes, our word, our bond. Amen. Jesus said it's simple. Say, yes, I will, or no, I will not. It seems we've moved from handshake promises to contractual promises, and they're not even honored anymore. I don't know if any of you watched the movie. I'm just talking about movies because I don't watch them, so I have to read about them. I don't know if you ever watched the, the movie Mr. Deeds. Anybody? Adam Sandler. I have no clue in the world who that is, but anyway, I'm talking like I really know. The movie came out in 2002. But I was interested because Mr. Deeds has a rich uncle that died, and he's the lone beneficiary, and he inherits billions of dollars. So he flies into New York, and in the midst of all kinds of things going on, he realizes <coughs> that one of the things he has is he owns a professional football team. So the star quarterback comes barging into a meeting that he was in and demands to renegotiate his contract. Obviously, he'd heard the word that he was worth millions or billions. Things get kind of out of hand and kind of rough. And Deeds, Adam Sandler, asks him if he does not play well next year, if they can reduce his pay then. I've often wondered about that. Yeah, I want to re renegotiate my contract. Okay, but if you don't play well next year, then can we pay you less? He said, no. Then Deeds tells him that not only would they not renegotiate his contract, but that he was fired. Later on, the quarterback's father makes him call Mr. Deeds and apologize and assures him he will honor the contract. And that scene, even being told, is kind of funny. But it drives home a point. We are forgetting God's standards of letting our yes be yes and our no be no. We always have to fall in some gray area in between, kind of the mushy area. And our word, sad to say, is no longer our bond anymore. While it's helping decimate our society, and that's one thing, it's also destroying many churches, sad to say. Hey, we look at the Apostle Paul when he was warning us to guard our testimony within the church, and we hear his strong and stern warning. And, and the whole thing can be wrapped up by saying the concept of not keeping promises will not only allow us to lose our testimony within the church, but will also destroy our testimony and the church's testimony to the non-church world. I read the story of a building contractor. 
who drove up to a prospective job site, and he was going to give the prospective builder or owner a price on the job. But as he got there and hopped out of his truck, um, the, 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 the man started walking around the contractor's truck. The contractor said, I thought he was looking at the lettering and the great logo that I had there and all the nice fine work we had on the truck. I asked him if he liked it, and he said, sure, but that's not what I'm looking for. And the, and the, contractor, or the contractor said, well, I, well, what is it that you are looking for? He said, well, he, I'm looking for the fish. The fish? Yeah, that fish image that many people have on their vehicles. So the other man asked why, thinking he was looking for some kind of proof that he really was a Christian or about to assure him that he was a person of faith. And you know what he said? He said, I don't do business with those people. And so the man asked him, he said, why is that? And here is the answer. In his experience, in his business, in his time of working with people that he basically didn't know at all, when he found out they were Christians, he found out they were the most dishonest and rude people that he'd ever dealt with. And he wouldn't work with them. Now that's a sad, sad indictment on the church and on Christians and on people that he maybe had come in contact with and kind of excludes the rest of us, but you know what? In a sense, it doesn't. It kind of includes all of us. So keep that in mind, thinking you're just out there on your own and nobody really cares and nobody's going to know and nobody's going to think anything and nobody's going to react a certain way. Listen, you can't be too careful. You can't be too sure of that. You want to know why we're losing the battle for our faith in the world around us today? You want to know why folks are leaving many churches never to return? Well, some of the reason, not all, but some of the reason is because of the testimony of the church. I've been in this area long enough. I've heard a lot of the stories. The people who proclaim faith and salvation through Jesus Christ. We are the church, and I, I tell you, many of them have lost sight of living by God's standard. And I hear this every once in a while, and I say, so what is it that bothers you? And I hear something along this line. Well, you know, it's so hard to live out your faith out there in an unsaved world, and it's so lonely out there. And when you live by God's standard, it feels like you're the only one. Do you ever feel like that as you take a stand for God? Well, if you do, just remember this. Only eight people got on the ark. Only four people got out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Only David stood against Goliath. Only Elijah stood against the prophets of Baal. Only three Hebrew children refused to bow to the king's idol. Only one woman anointed the feet of Jesus. And only one apostle stood by the cross of the Lord Jesus. Being a true Christian can get lonely. Being a Christian in an unsaved world can be devastating at times, but being part of the heavenly minority is worth it all in the end. Stay true. Stay true. Stay true to your word and stay true to him. 
we must, Christian, we must let our yes be yes and our no be no. A promise is still a promise. Our testimony as Christians hinges on that standard that God has put forth. God expects us to keep our promises to each other, and we can rest assured that God will keep His promises to all of us. So what are those promises? First, He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Amen? Secondly, He promises to always be there for us. Just like he was with the servant of Abraham. He didn't, he didn't abandon him. He didn't let him down. He didn't shut off his prayer. He didn't turn down his request. But we just have to trust in him. And the third thing he promises, most of all, he promises forgiveness of sin through our belief in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for that sin. Where? On a cross. On a hill that we call Calvary. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. That penalty is death. So that we could have eternal life through our acceptance and belief in Him. It's that simple. It's that simple. Even the repentant thief dying on a cross right next to Jesus understood this all-important truth. I wonder, I wonder, how does the thief on the cross fit into your theology? No baptism, no communion, no confirmation, no speaking in tongues, no mission trip, no volunteerism, no church clothes, he couldn't even bend his knees to pray. He never said the sinner's prayer. He was a thief. Jesus didn't take away his pain. He didn't heal his body. He didn't smite the scoffers. Yet it was a thief, did you notice? Who walked into heaven the same hour as Jesus. Simply, how? By believing. He had nothing more to offer than his belief that Jesus was who he said he was. No spin from brilliant theologians, no eloquent preaching, no ego or arrogance, no shiny lights, no skinny jeans, no crafty words, no haze machine, no donuts, no coffee in the entryway, just a naked, dying man on a cross, unable to even fold his hands to pray. I'm so glad John 3.16 remains right where it's always been. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, say it with me, believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe in God's promise today? Unlike many out in that world, God will always keep his promise. Because after all, as I might have said before, a promise is a promise is a promise. Our word, our word, 
our bond. God's word, his bond. After all, a promise is a promise. I might have said that before. Is a promise. Here's my heart desire. That God will bless you as you continue to strive to walk worthy of his calling. My word is my word and my bond. Your word is your bond. And church, hear me, our word is our bond.